Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. It's summertime, and uh, how many of you that live that live here now and lived here last summer would agree that this summer has been hotter than last summer. Would you agree with that? Good. I thought it was just me getting older. Um, I didn't know what was going on. But with that being said, people try to do all sorts of things, right, to be able to cool off. And so one of the things we like to do with our children is we take them to the pool. Uh, we don't have a pool, so we go over to our neighbors and bum the pool time with them. Or, or we go over to somewhere else where we can get a free time at the pool. And so we try to get Emerson and Kaysen swimming as much as possible uh, just to get them used to it. And so Emerson's on her little yellow, yellow floaty, and she's kind of floating along the water and we're watching her, and then there's Kaysen, and we put this, like, life vest type thing on where he puts his arms through, and he's got the floaties on his arms, and so he can kind of kick around in the water. But I remember when Kaysen was just old enough to realize that water was a little bit scary, he can't stand on it, but yet not young enough to know where, hey, I could just go in the water and not be a big deal. I remember he would stand on the edge, and I wanted him to trust me to jump into the water. And so he would go to the edge, and I remember him standing there and him looking at me. And, and I think all of you can envision this. The, the child's standing at the edge there, and they're shaking. And I'm right there in the pool, and I say, Kaysen, just jump me. Just, tr- just jump me. Don't jump me. Jump onto me. I'll catch you. And so I'm standing with my arms out, and I say, Kaysen, just trust me. Just trust me. And I had never done anything for him not to trust me, but he was still scared. And sure, after a few moments uh, of him deciding whether or not this is a certain thing that he should do. He got brave enough and trusted me and jumped, and I caught him. If you were to rewind back several thousand years ago, what you have here during this time of the book of 1 John are all these Christians that are lined up on the edge of the pool, and John is saying, out in the pool with his arms stretched out, just trust me regarding this Christian walk. Just trust me. We think about it, the Christians did not have the complete canon, which is what we refer to as a scripture. Revelation didn't exist yet. Uh, several other books didn't exist yet. So it wasn't like, hey, I got an issue in life. Let me go to First uh, Peter or wherever and, and look this up. They didn't have all those books yet. And so what was going on are all these Christians, and, and Christianity was a fairly new, underneath the dispensation of grace, it was a fairly new concept. The writing of the book of First John occurred 50 years after Christ ascended into heaven. After his resurrection. And so the gospels we see in the book of Acts as we study on Wednesday nights went viral. It's spreading all across the nation. And so all these people are receiving Christ. But what you have are all these baby Christians that are lined up along this pool. And you have the weight of the church, so to speak, the establishment of the church upon the shoulders of the apostles. And so John, seeing the need of, of people becoming sure in their faith, is, is looking at all these baby Christians and he's saying, just jump. And so he writes this book, book of 1 John, for the purpose of solidifying our standing in Christ as Christians. There's a lot of different religions, as we discussed, that uh, was going on at this particular time, Gnosticism being one of the big ones, and that was a religion that taught that man did not have a sinful nature, and it took away the sinful nature of Jesus Christ, and so obviously that went against Christianity, you see, it had all these Christians that were confused. And so we're going through a series right now. If you take your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, we're going we're gonna to jump in there this morning here. But 1 John chapter 2, we're going through this series on the book of 1 John. 
And really discovering how we can become grounded, how we can know for sure that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've been discovering the difference between a true Christian and a hypocrite, a person that's, that's not a genuine Christian. In 1 John chapter 1, in verses 1 through 4, John establishes his authority to write upon the scriptures as being an apostle. A person that ate with Jesus, that that slept in the same room as Jesus, a person that prayed with Jesus, heard him talk. He says to them, I'm sorry, Siri just went off. That's never happened before. Uh, What he says to that is, listen, you don't need to listen to all these people that never saw Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus gave me a direct word specifically. You can listen to what I'm about to say. And then he continues on in verses 5 through, uh, really down verses 5 through the beginning part of chapter 2, verse 2. And he talks about that a genuine Christian is one that walks in the light. Their life will be characterized as a person that lives for Christ and does not live for sin. Doesn't mean they're perfect. He specifies that in verse 8. He says, even though you're a Christian, it does not mean that your sinful nature has been taken away from you. And it's important to remember We have the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. He gives us the power to overcome sin, but unfortunately, we still sin. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian will be sensitive to their sin and have a desire to please God. And then last week, we discovered that a genuine Christian is one that follows the commandments of God, one that obeys the commandments of God out out of a heart to love and please the Lord. And then one of the ways that we manifest that is through loving our brother and loving our sister. Not only other Christians, but also those that are non-Christians. The Bible talks about in the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, Jesus Christ says that your neighbor is anyone that you come in contact with, anyone that you legitimately have a conversation with, that is your neighbor, you ought to show love to them. If a person's life is, is, is characterized by hate and disgust towards other people, they want nothing to do with other people, especially Christians, then they need to examine whether or not they have the light of Christ in them. The Bible says, John says in, in, in John here, 1 John, that if you do not have the love for others inside of you, in other words, the love of God, then you are a liar and the truth is not in you. John has some pretty strong words regarding that. So as we continue on in our journey here, We need to look at this next section of Scripture, and we're going to be focusing this morning on 1 John chapter 2, really on verses 15 through 17. When my wife and I were first married, um, there's a lot of different things that you figure out. Not to call anybody out in here, but Lauren and TJ are figuring that out right now. Probably doing a much better job, TJ, than I did when we were first married. My wife and I grew up vastly different. You could not... Well, unless she grew up in another country, you pretty much could not get any different than how we grew up. My wife grew up from a big family uh, on a farm in Nebraska. I was a city kid, like they call me, uh, from a smaller family in the suburbs of of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. And so how we grew up is completely different. And uh, I I tried my best to be able to help out around the house, and and I still do. My wife's like, ah, things have changed since we've had kids. Uh, But anyway, I tried my best to be able to help out around the house, and, and it we all had our chores growing up, right? So one of my chores was, not necessarily a chore, a responsibility was after I was done eating, I would take my food and I would uh, clean off my plate and I would put my um, plate inside the, uh, rinse it off, put it inside the dishwasher. Well, I never really ran the dishwasher because we were still loading it. And my mom would just put whatever she needed to put in there and close up the dishwasher and run it. And so I did laundry in in college, and I didn't know that it was completely necessary for you to separate the whites and the darks. I didn't think that was a big deal. I was a college student. I didn't want to pay for two loads of laundry, so I put them all together. And 
guess what? I never had pink shirts. It all worked out. Now, my shirts weren't as white as they probably could have been, but it all worked out in the end. One particular day, my wife is at, she's at work, and, and uh, I'm going to help her out. And so I take all the dishes, and I load the dishwasher, and I'm like, I've never run a dishwasher before. Um, so I went underneath the sink, and I grabbed um, dish uh, soap. And so I opened up the dishwasher, and I took the dish soap, and I put it inside the little pocket, whatever that's called there, the little hole, whatever you put it in. And I closed up the dishwasher, and I hit run, and I was like, man, my wife's going to love me. A few minutes later, I go back into the kitchen to grab something, and guess what happened? There's bubbles all over my kitchen. I open up the dishwasher, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I'm like trying to find a shot back to suck up the bubbles and get the water out, and I made a complete mess. Didn't ruin anything, but it could have been really bad if I left the house. What happened? I put something in the dishwasher that should not have been in the dishwasher, and the dishwasher rejected it. When it comes to Christianity, we're going to look at a section of verses here that the Apostle John says ought not to be in the heart of a Christian. Because the Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of their heart. If they were to take what he's going to talk about here, and that's the world system, the world's philosophy, and put it in their heart, they ought to reject it because it does not belong there. They are a Christian. So if you would stand with me this morning, we're going to read out of respect of the Word of God. And we're going to read 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to read in uh, verses 15 through 17. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of the Father abideth forever. John says that a Christian does not love the world. But John says earlier that we ought to love others. So my question then is this morning, and if, if you do not have a Bible, would you go ahead and raise your hand? You could, we'll give you one. So if you do not have a Bible, Mr. Russell, come forward and he'll give you a Bible. You can have that. But the question is here this morning, if, if the Apostle John tells us that we ought to not love the world but love others, and those that are others do not have Christ, they have the world in them. How do we love others, as John commands us, but at the same time be exclusive to the world? How do we separate the two? This morning, I dare say that there are some in this room that, that are participating in a lifestyle or making choices that you as a Christian cannot and will not identify with because you know that according to the Scriptures, you can't do so. So the question is, how do we love them, but yet not accept their lifestyle, but do it in a loving way so that they see the love of God in us? Our goal this morning is to take this passage of Scripture and apply that very thing and discover how do we love others and not love the world. The title of the message this morning is, A A True Christian Rejects the World. Maybe seated. Thank you. Thank you for standing out of respect of God's word. Here's an important thing to remember here when it comes to this idea of rejection. On this past Wednesday night, we talked about Acts, and we've been going through this journey of of the book of Acts, and we focused specifically on the first official sermon of the church, and that was Paul's official uh, first 
not Paul, sorry, not Paul, Peter, Peter's first official sermon. And so he's standing up there and he's sharing this hope of Jesus Christ. But uh, through that whole process, he is basically laying out to the Jews that are listening, you are the ones that crucified the Christ. You are the ones that nailed him to the cross. Even though those same Jews were not the ones that were physically present, who they represented and what they believed in were the ones that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. And so Peter, giving this really strong indictment towards the Jews that are listening, towards the end of the message, the Holy Spirit worked, and the Bible says that the Jews responded back to Peter, what shall we do? The Bible says that they were pierced to the heart. They were cut to the heart over conviction, remorse, and grief over what they had done to Jesus Christ. Peter then responds to them and says, repent, repent. Oftentimes the the aspect of repentance is, is overlooked in the whole salvation uh, aspect. A lot of people believe that if Jesus Christ, and we, we accept him in our heart that he died on the cross for us, I believe that, that's great, but they never repent of their lifestyle, then, then that's okay. They can still continue to live how they lived before, but as long as they believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, then they're good. And that's not the case. The Bible says over and over and over again that repentance is necessary for salvation. What is repentance? It is agreeing upon or with God about your sinful lifestyle. It's understanding that without Christ, I am on this path. I need to repent. I need to trust Christ, turn off this path, and go on this path. If I can illustrate it this way, um, you've got that wall over here, and you've got that wall over here. When we are born, this wall represents sin. This wall represents a sinful lifestyle. It's a life with, with following Satan. When everybody's born because of our choice to sin, we are all walking on this path. The Bible says that because of our sin, we cannot have a relationship with Christ. It cannot be done. But Christ came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. He is the only one that is able to, that is worthy enough to turn us from this path and place us on this path. But here's the important thing. So many people believe that as long as they know in their head that that's what Christ has done, then they're good. But yet they still continue to walk on this path. They still continue to live a sinful lifestyle without giving their whole entire life to Christ. Repentance has never happened. The Bible says in order for us to repent, what we have to do is acknowledge, you know what, God, you're right. I'm on this path that has rejected you, that's following the ways of Satan. God, this path is wrong. I agree with you. So therefore, Lord, I trust that you are God. I trust that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. I am repenting. I'm accepting you. And now I'm turning and I'm going this way. It's a 180 degree turn. There's two facts about repentance. First off, repentance is a in faith are two-sided coins. Adaba says that you have to have faith and trust that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That is true. But true repentance cannot happen without faith, and true faith cannot happen without repentance. Because by faith, what you are saying is, God, I trust that your son is the only way to heaven. And so therefore, I'm going to stop living my life my way, and I'm going to trust in you and accept your son and live my life your way, my life your way. And so we turn around and we go forward. Another thing about repentance, about this being a two-sided coin here, is that repentance always requires a heart change. It always requires a heart change. As I mentioned earlier, the Apostle John talks about this. I wish that repentance equaled the removal of our sinful nature, but it does not. And so just because you repent and you start following Christ does not mean that you're going to slip up every once in a while. It does not mean that you're going to uh, uh, never sin. It means that you will sin, unfortunately, 
But as the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us, he's growing us and he's shaping us, we can keep going forward and following Christ and we can know for sure that Christ has saved us and there's nothing that anybody can ever do or say to be able to take that away from us. Understanding this aspect of repentance, the Apostle John then capitalizes on that and he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And he gives us here three realities regarding a Christian's relationship with the world. Number one in your notes, a genuine Christian rejects the world's systems. It rejects the world's systems. To best understand this verse and how it applies to Christianity, we have to define two key terms here and that is love and that is world. Love is an intense feeling of deep affection. Love cannot be bought. It can't be forced. It can't be taken away from somebody by someone else. The reason why we experience love is a direct result of man being created in the image of God. No other creature can love. So, well, my dog loves me. Your dog appreciates you because you pet him and you feed him. They don't love you like a human loves. No other creation does that. Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our image. What's referred to in that term image is not talking about how we look in our physical appearance. God is a spirit. He doesn't look like this. Jesus Christ came to earth in human form, and so therefore he looked like a Jewish man, but God is a spirit. So it's what, he's, what he's referring to is when man, God created man in, in, in our image, and the hour is referring to the Trinity there, it means that man has the ability to love, has the ability to have logic, to think, and to experience emotions. Man can reciprocate a relationship with someone else. And so the love aspect is a direct result of us being created in the image of God. But here's the problem. When man repents and calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation, the love of God is placed within their hearts and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's a great thing. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39 says so. So as a Christian, we are followers of Christ. And so the things that Christ loves ought to be the things that we love. The things that Christ hates ought to be the things that we hate. The type of love that a Christian possesses is an unconditional love for all things that honor and please and glorify Christ. If our love in our heart does not match up with the type of love that God has, it'll never be a perfect love. But if we don't love the things that God loves and we don't hate the things that God hates, then the Apostle John says we have to take a serious, close examination of our heart and our standing with Christ. The next thing we have to define here is the world. John is certainly not speaking about creation and beauty. You know, I don't hate the chairs that are in here. I don't hate the building. I don't hate creation. It's beautiful, right? God created it. Of course we enjoy it. There is nothing wrong with having an appreciation or even a love for flowers. Those of you that have been in our church for any period of time will realize our church family loves flowers. The ladies. I don't think any guys have that much appreciation for them. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with loving animals or loving your pet. So the Bible obviously is not talking about the world in that sense, the material world. What the Bible is talking about is a world referring to the invisible spiritual system of evil that is dominated by Satan. A good example of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 
Verses 3 through 5, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war with the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself in the knowledge of God and bringeth us into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Christ. The world is any thought, philosophy, behavior, or belief system that opposes God. John says, that we ought to not love the world, but then he takes it one step further and says, do not love the things that are in the world. Once again, he's not referring to plants and animals. He's not referring to that. He's referring to the things that are in the world that will take our attention off God and his calling for our life. If you have your Bibles, hold your fingers here. Luke chapter 12, really quick. Luke chapter 12, we're going to read a parable of the rich man. And this is how God explains this particular situation, Jesus Christ. He uses the words here in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. It says, And one of the company said unto him, Master, talking to Jesus, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed, beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. In verse 16, he says, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat and drink and be merry. And God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What is he saying here is that this foolish man gained all this material wealth and focused on that and put God out of the picture. I want to be very clear about something. God blesses many people in many different ways. There are solid Christians out there that have been blessed financially. There is nothing wrong. God does not hate or dislike rich people. What God dislikes are those that take riches and place it over God. Poor people do the same thing. Poor people can take their lack of things that they don't have and place that over God. And they work and they work and they work and they work to try to get that next thing in order to compete with everybody else. The Bible says here that we ought to not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Don't be consumed with gaining all these things that you forget about God. So the question here this morning is, how do we put the truths of verse 15 together? We love the things that Christ loves and we hate the things that Christ hates. Let's take this verse and let's play it in the 21st century. Where inclusion and political correctness are buzzwords. Here is the facts. Christ never hated human beings. He never did. He sent his son to die on the cross for them. So anyone that says Christians hate other people because they don't agree with my lifestyle, if the Christians are loving as Christ did, that is not the case. That is not the case. The Bible says that even in our sins, he still died for us. But God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. Sin is a death sentence, but Christ passionately loved us, so we died for us that we could be rescued from our sin. In Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So likewise, as a Christian, we are to hate, 
what God hates and love what God loves. We hate the sin and anything that would be comprised of the world system, but we love people and we never stop loving people. The Bible says uh, uh, over and over again through the life of Christ that Christ always loved the person, but he could not tolerate the sin. He could not tolerate the sin. But taking a a loving stand for Christ, it can be tough. The U.S. women's soccer team has been in the, the national headlines for quite some time, and it's awesome that we have been represented in such a great, great way by the women, and they won us a World Cup. How many more did they win than the guys? I think it's, I don't know, it's just, I, I they just think they're a lot better of a soccer team than the guys are. They represented us very well. But another thing that's been in the headlines quite often is, is one of the players named Jaylene Hinkle. Jalen currently plays for the North Carolina Courage, which is a professional women's soccer team based in Cary. She's an outspoken Christian that has made recent headlines for her choice to participate on the U.S. women's national team. After the Supreme Court affirmed the same-set couple's right to marry, Hinkle placed this quote on social media. This world may change, but Christ and his word will never change. My heart that as Christians is that we don't begin to throw a tantrum over what has been brought into the law today, but we become that much more loving. And the caption also suggested that rainbows are a constant reminder that no matter how corrupt this world becomes, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Just days before the first match, Hinkle declined the offer to play due to personal reasons. Later on, she was held up in an interview and, and uh, on the 700 Club and She began to explain the dilemma that she faced when she was asked to wear the pride jersey. She said, I just felt so convicted in my spirit that it was not my job to wear this jersey. And I gave myself three days to just seek and pray and determine what he was asking me to do in the light of this situation. And she said on the show, I knew in my spirit that I was doing the right thing. I knew that I was being obedient. I'm not here this morning to tell everyone that you ought to be like Jaylene Hinkle. She's a human being. She makes mistakes like all of us. But what I am here to say is this. As a Christian, this world is only going to get progressively more corrupt and progressively worse and worse and worse. And so for us to stand up to be a Christian and and reject the world system and live for Christ will become harder and harder and harder. But I want to stress this over and over and over again, that just because a person identifies with this lifestyle, we don't accept it, but we never hate that person. We always pray for them. We never stop praying for them. We never stop loving them. What's the difference between us and that person? As a Christian, we've been saved by the grace of God. We've accepted God's grace. They haven't done so yet. That's the only difference. It's not that because we don't struggle with that sin, we're a better sinner or we're a better person than they are. That homosexuality, fornication, adultery, uh, pornography, all those sins in the eyes of God are sin. It's sin. Just because a group of people accepts one sin over another does not mean that we ought to treat a group of people differently. What does the Bible say here in this passage? Is that we as Christians ought to reject the world system. We don't tolerate that, but we do it in a loving, God-honoring way. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, but speaking the truth in hate, right? Is that what it says? No, but speaking the truth in love. In love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head of Christ. Those churches, those group of Christians that stand outside a funeral of a person that did not live their life for Christ and 
protesting and yell and scream and have signs that say homosexuals are going to hell. That is not biblical. But neither is a church that accepts that lifestyle because that's how God made them. Romans chapter 1 says that that's still a sin. My question here this morning is, as we, are, as we are striving to be Christians, some of the times we are taught that the most loving thing that we can do is just let a person be who they are. But my question is, is it really that loving to allow a person to continue in sin and grow further and further away from Christ? Is that really the most loving thing to do? Or is it to come alongside somebody, put your arm around them through sacrificial service, loving on them, showing them the way, not jamming it down their throat, but loving on them to the point where you're guiding them back to a life with Christ or even helping them start that life to begin with? And that is my prayer as a church that we would be like in our society. And that's what John says here, that we reject the world. We don't love the things that are in the world. The Bible says if any man love the world, if he loves it, then the love of the Father is not in him. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, I'm sorry, in point number two in verse 16, it says a genuine Christian rejects the world's characteristics. John says that everything that is in the world can be defined by three characteristics, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What is the Bible talking about when it comes to the lust of the flesh? That's man's innate sinful nature. That is the sinful nature that we all possess. That is what we, as a human being, desire to do. We desire to not do the things of Christ. Even after a Christian, we have that constant struggle. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25, this is what Paul says. And Paul's certainly a Christian at this point. He says, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But that what I hate, I do. If I then do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is good. Now, then it is no more that I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in my heart, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present within me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not I do. Now I feel I do not when I would do good, evil is present within me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. For I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity into the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I find myself serving the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. What he's saying here in this particular passage is that I wish more than anything that I did not disobey God but my flesh and my spirit are in a constant battle and I wish more than anything that I would follow God at all times and when I don't follow God I'm following my flesh which is not good but when I do follow God I'm following the spirit I use this as an example before what do we do in order to make our flesh stronger? We feed it. We feed it by going to church. You all are doing that here this morning. We feed it by reading the Bible throughout the week, by praying, having a conversation with God. You have two dogs. Let's just use two pit bulls, for example. You have two pit bulls. They're both the same type of dog, the same type of breed, and uh, they, they are the same age. Let's say that for a year, you want to prepare these two pit bulls to fight. So you feed one. All the really good stuff. The steak, well, I don't know if the dog is supposed to eat that. All the good stuff the dog is supposed to eat. You feed it twice a day. You work it out, you put some weights on it, it's lifting weights, it's getting pumped up. You take this other dog over here, you feed it once a day, you give it mini wheats or, I don't know, sugar or something like that. Really bad food. You feed both of these dogs, you feed one once a day, terrible food. You feed the other one twice a day, really good food. After a year, those two dogs fight, who's going to win? The one that's been fed more, right? 
the one that's stronger. When our flesh and our spirit go to battle in our Christian life, when we're, when we're growing in Christ, the thing that we feed more is what's going to become stronger and it's going to take over in our life. If we're constantly feeding our flesh by, by looking at things we should not look at, by participating in things we should not participate, and setting this Bible to our nightstand and not looking at it throughout the week, then our flesh is going to become stronger. But on the flip side of that, if we are, we, are, we are dying to self every single day and we're setting aside things that we know we should not do as Christians and, and we're feeding ourselves with the word of God, then our spirit will become stronger, will become that much more like Christ. It talks about the lust of the flesh and then it talks about the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is the gateway in which Satan entices man to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Going back to the Garden of Eden, right? When Satan is standing there, to, or he's in the form of a serpent and he's tempting Eve, what does he say to Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6? The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. The devil, in his deceit, tricked Eve by the beauty of that fruit, the lust of the eyes, and she, she participated in that sin. And then finally you have the pride of life. The pride of life is in reference to the haughty or the arrogant spirit that one acquires when they focus too much on their possessions and beliefs or abilities. James chapter 4 verse 6 says, you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. When a person is consumed upon their own lust and pride, they're often dominated by that sinful and prideful behavior. James chapter 1 verse 14 says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and he's enticed. Take your Bibles very quickly to Romans chapter 1. We're almost done, but Romans chapter 1, I want to read this passage here, one that we have not discussed here yet. But this is what happens when a person is consumed with a sinful lifestyle. Romans chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 18, we'll read down to verse 32. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto him, as talking about both general and specific revelation. General revelation is in reference to God revealing himself through nature, through creation. It's God has put within the heart of every single man the desire to know in a supernatural being. God has revealed himself through that in special revelation, specific revelations through God's word, the Holy Spirit speaking directly to us in that way. In verse 20, it says, For the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The rest of the passage is here. I want you to put this in light of the 21st century. Look at verse 21. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to a corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who was blessed forever. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections for even their woman did change their natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lust one toward another. Men working with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was met. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do things that are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, and placeable, unmerciful, who knowledge the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. This is describing a world that has been overcome by sin. And the Bible says that as we continue to walk further and further and further away from God, God will turn our minds over to a reprobate mind. Which explains a society that has pushed God out of the picture for so long will begin to justify things that they would have never justified before if they were following the word of God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But then to give us some encouragement, look at the final verse here in verse 17. It says, And the world passeth away and lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Point number three, a genuine Christian rejoices in God's promises. In verse 17, John con- contrasts two things. He says, that which is passing compared to that which is permanent. The physical world, the nature, the buildings, the creation, all will pass away soon enough along with the passing of the physical world or will be the passing of the evil spiritual one. There will be a coming time when all the heartache and the tragedy that this world has to offer will no longer have an effect on society. John says there's only one thing that will last forever and that is him that does the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the will of God. Those that have received Christ as their personal Lord and Savior will last forever, but this world is only temporary. So if I can close with this. You may be caught up right now in some, in some sin and some terrible times, but... Let this be an encouragement to you. The the, the more you grow closer to God, the less likely you will be to fall in those things. Don't let the discouragements of this world keep you from living for God. It's only temporary. But the closer we develop our relationship with God, the more we can feel God's love in our hearts and in our own lives. The more passionate we become to live for God. My wife um, was reading a book not too long ago. It's called The Five love languages for your children. And the case is just at the age now where we can kind of determine what his love language is. And Emerson, obviously, being so young, her love language is to eat. And so uh, with Kaysen, we're trying to figure out how can we communicate to him that we love him. And in comparing all these different things, we realize that Kaysen's number one love language right now is quality time. Quality time. That's how he knows that we love him. And so what I've noticed is that recently, um, Kaysen would, he, he wants to go outside and he wants to play and he wants to run around and he wants to jump around. And so I get home from work and my wife's like, just take 15 minutes and give Kaysen undivided attention. And so I try to do that. And I notice that every single time that I give Kaysen my undivided attention, he always responds to me in the middle of us playing is, Daddy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. Why? Because I'm spending time with Kaysen. Kaysen is present with me. He sees the goodness of his father. In spending that time with him, he knows that his father is providing for him. 
And so therefore he responds, and the only way that he understands is that particular moment, and that is, Daddy, I love you. The more we spend time with God, the more we reject sin, we reject the world's philosophies and the world's systems, and the more we jump into God's word and we pray and we serve him, you know what's going to be our response? Daddy, Father, I love you. I love you. God, you are so good.